Hi, and welcome to Pimped, OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in obstetrics and gynecology. I'm Dr. Jennifer Dory, an OBGYN resident at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and founder of Pimped, a medical flashcard app. My particular interests are in academic OBGYN and medical student education. Welcome back to Pimped. Today we're talking about what you should know before your first laparoscopy. Now this is a really broad topic, so we're going to try and hit all the high points, but in gynecologic surgery, we use laparoscopy for a lot of different things and a lot of different specific procedures. So it's kind of difficult to talk about in a specific and yet general sense, but I'm going to do my best. First off, laparoscopy. Essentially, all it is is looking into the belly with a camera. And nowadays, it used to be just a single person looking through a single lens. Now we can all see it. It's up on beautiful screens all around you. It's well lit. It's well coordinated. And it's a great chance to see a lot of really good um, in vivo anatomy. So review your anatomy. You're going to be able to see stuff really well. And as a result, people are going to ask you questions about it. Um, Check out the Pimped YouTube channel. Uh, I've got a bunch of really good videos bookmarked that walk you through the most important pelvic anatomy for... um, GYN surgery. I can't take credit for them. I just picked them out. So, but other people have put together some really nice teaching videos. So you should check those out before you go back for any major laparoscopic case. All right. So then the first thing you need to know specific to your case is what case are you doing and why? Take a look at the name of the procedure, Google it, look at the most common indications. If you can, just find a brief overview of the steps of the procedure and the potential risks and complications. These are going to give you clues about the specific questions you might get asked in the OR and just give you an idea of what's coming up so you can actually learn from everything that you're seeing rather than just being so lost looking at this monitor somewhere in the pelvis that you don't even know what you're looking at. So it really helps to orient you to kind of know what's about to come your way. All right, so now you know what your case is. It's about half an hour before your case is supposed to go. So you should head down to the pre-op area, wherever that is in your hospital. Say hi to the patient. Introduce yourself as a member of the surgical team. Let them know you're a student, but that you're there to help and learn. And you're going to be assisting. You're going to be helping out with the case and making it easier and safer for the surgeons. So most students don't get turned away from these types of surgeries. um, But I always emphasize that it is a team effort and that you guys also help help us make this safe, effective, and um, fast procedure, which is nice for the patients. Um, So then you'll roll back to the OR when it's time for the case. Uh, Make the nurses and the scrub techs and the circulating nurses, everyone, your best friends. So you want to be helpful in the OR. This will also make the residents and the attendings and whoever you're with um, much more eager to work with you. So be helpful with the patients, help them move over to the other bed, and you'll kind of get the sense of how this all works within a few cases in the main OR. So you'll, um, oftentimes our patients are going to be in lithotomy, which is going to be their feet up in these stirrups, their legs up in these stirrups, um, and the bottom part of the bed is going to go away. And so you can help with putting on the brackets, putting on the um, yellow fins. If it's your first day in the OR, tell the resident, tell the attending, tell whoever's there and ask them how you can help. We love to teach you guys because if we teach you well at the beginning, it makes the rest of the rotation so much nicer for all of us. Um, 
before you get to anywhere close to scrubbing in, find out if you are going to scrub in. Find out if you're going to be helpful. At some institutions, there's going to be an attending, a fellow, and a resident, or maybe two residents, and they might not want you to scrub in because you won't be able to see well. They might actually request that you not scrub so you can get a better view so you don't have to stay sterile. Um, So check in with your resident or your fellow or attending, whoever. Find out if you're going to scrub. If you are, um, ask the scrub tech or the circulator if you should open your own gown and gloves, or at least pull them and have them ready for them to open for you. If you don't know how to open things sterilely, again, ask somebody to show you. We would all much rather show you than to risk contaminating a portion of our sterile field. Um, It's really not a big deal. We, again, so much better than an oops and having to start over with um, re-sterilizing things. So um, after you've grabbed everything and you're all ready, now it's time to think about the patient. The patient at this point, hopefully asleep. We're going to, usually anesthesia, will touch base with the surgeons and ask if they want antibiotics for the procedure. So in GYN surgery, we use antibiotics for two main reasons, and it's if we're going to enter the uterus or if we're going to enter the vagina. Other than that, there are some other indications, excessive blood loss, um, really long surgical time. We can sometimes require some prophylactic antibiotics, but for most of the time, it's going to be we're entering the uterus or the vagina. And this includes hysteroscopic um, procedures that we'll talk about in a separate podcast. Um, If we're going to do antibiotics, most of the time it's going to be some variety of acephalosporin unless there's an allergy. Um, And sometimes with the additional flagell or something like that for the anaerobic bacteria. So after we talk about antibiotics, let's talk about the prep. We need to make the skin and the body as surgically clean as we can. So on the abdomen, on any exposed um, keratinized skin, we're going to use typically something like a chloroprep. That's an, I think that's a name brand. I'm not even sure, honestly. But it's a variety of skin prep that I've seen used in many, at least five, six different hospitals at this point. Um, it's an alcohol-based prep that evaporates and dries uh, and provides a barrier. And the thing to know about it is it is alcohol-based. And so the concern about alcohol is that it's flammable. So we have to actually let this dry and let the alcohol vapors um, escape before we put the drapes up and trap them under the drapes. There are a couple case reports of these fumes collecting under drapes if they're draped too quickly and then actually becoming flammable, especially with the ET tube or the um, intubation and the oxygen flowing through uh, the ventilator. It can be a big fire. So we let it dry. Um, The other thing we need to prep as gynecologists is the vagina. The vagina is not clean. It's never meant to be all that clean. We can make it surgical clean, but it's still not going to be sterile. It's never going to be sterile. Um, so for the vagina, we can use a couple different things. Most often you're going to see betadine used, although betadine um, is not uh, for everyone. Some people are going to have shellfish allergies and it's iodine based. So shellfish uh, allergy is a contraindication to using betadine unless they've safely used betadine in the past. If they are allergic to betadine or um, if you know it's going to be a long or a particularly vaginally bloody procedure like urogynecology, um, people will sometimes use chlorhexidine. Again, the same sort of thing as we used, uh, we can use in the abdominal prep. This we have to use a lower concentration because uh, there are concerns it could burn the vaginal mucosa, but less than 4% is fine. Um, Um, If we don't have that or if the institution doesn't like using that, the other thing people will use is actually Johnson & Johnson baby shampoo, Um, just something to clean the vagina and try to make it as, you know, surgically clean, not sterile, but surgically clean as we possibly can. 
But because of this, keep in mind, nothing in the vagina or anything that touches the vagina, it's not sterile. You cannot go from the vagina up top to like entering the abdomen or you're just asking for an infection. So you'll see us, this is one area that we often will end up scrubbing and then we'll, um, you know, putting on our sterile gown and gloves, taking off our sterile gown and gloves, regowning, regloving. If we go, have to go from the vagina back up top to the, um, to a laparoscopic portion or back down. Um, but as a student or as an assistant, you're often going to be staying down in the vagina to help manipulate and using um, vaginal or uterine manipulators. Uh, so you'll often stay dirty. All right. So let's talk about once we go and scrub then. So now we're all going to step out of the room, the resident, the attending, the fellow, the students, whoever, and whoever's going to scrub is going to go scrub. You're going to scrub up. First scrub of the day should be a wet scrub. Um, you got to clean off all the non-hospital-based dirt, essentially. Clean under your fingernails, clean all of it. Uh, after that, uh, if you have Avogadro or some type of alcohol-based um, dry, dry scrub, you can use that instead of doing a wet scrub every time. Uh, usually, so let the residents and attendings, obviously, it's one thing in medicine that's still a little bit hierarchical, but if they're ready to go ahead of time, you let them go first, obviously. Um, and because they're really going to be the ones who can drape and prepare the patient for um, the actual procedure. Uh, just because draping, there's a decent chance of contaminating something, we often don't ask for help with the draping. Um, so then we would go back in, we drape, and once all that's ready, we'll usually do a timeout, or it might have done before been done before you stepped out. Um, and then it's going to be time to, we usually start with the bottom. So we start with putting in a Foley catheter and then uh, your um, uterine manipulator if we're going to use one. So this will be often be somewhere we'll ask for, we'll let, let you and ask for your help. Um, so we can show you how to do the Foley and we can show you how to um, prepare the uh, vagina and everything in the cervix for the manipulator placement. A lot of the manipulators are just getting more and more complex because they're getting more and more advanced. So they can be difficult to place. So don't be surprised if we don't um, ask for your help in placing the actual manipulator, but we can oftentimes you'll get asked for help in sort of prepping the vagina and then doing the basic steps of finding the cervix, placing the speculum um, and those things to get ready for it. The manipulators are, like I said, going to come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. You don't need to worry about trying to learn the names of all of them or anything. But if you can get good at manipulating with them, meaning moving the uterus where you want it to be, um, that is going to make our jobs as surgeons um, so much easier. And we are going to love, love, love you for it. So it seems like a really thankless job. We know how hard it is. I promise we sometimes can get short or people might get frustrated and it's more so at the case than at you. We know that manipulating is so hard um, and none of us think back fondly on those days when we were in your shoes, but it seriously, it makes the entire case so much easier and so much smoother and so much safer when it is done well. So thank you for your work in advance. I know it's really hard and I don't like doing it myself either because it is so hard and much rather be operating, but we love you for it. Um, all right. So manipulators in the vagina is dirty. So now we're going to take off our gloves and our gown, probably regown, re-glove to go back up, go back to the abdomen and actually um, start working surgically from up above. If you are going to stay and manipulate, you are still going to stay dirty. So you don't need to change your gowns or your gown or gloves. Um, but just be aware that, you know, you can't touch anything on the top drapes. You can't touch anything near the abdomen because you will be, you are considered dirty at that point. So let's talk about the entry. We got to start the laparoscopic procedure. This is the part you actually thought we were going to spend the entire time talking about. Um, so typically we're going to enter through the belly button. We're going to go in through the umbilicus. And that's because that is where um, the minimum depth dips distance between your um, 
skin and your peritoneum. So you can go through very minimal sub-Q fat, no muscle right there. You can go straight down through um, and get straight into your peritoneum without having to go through all of the other layers. Uh, sometimes we won't go through the umbilicus. Most common reasons would be if somebody is morbidly obese and the umbilicus is getting pulled down and it's not, it's anatomically distorted. It's, it's closer to their mons than it is, you know, to where it should be. Uh, then we're not going to have enough room to work with. Uh, so we'll go above the umbilicus. Or if they've had multiple prior laparoscopic surgeries or there's some reason we're concerned about an umbilical hernia or there could be bowel or something right underneath the umbilicus, we won't want to go right through that because you don't want to enter right into bowel. That starts your day off real bad. Um, so we're going to go, we can go just up north in the left upper quadrant. There's a um, Palmer's Point, which is uh, used often if we're worried about adhesions or an umbilical hernia, or if you just need more room. It's a safe place for entry um, in that left upper quadrant. So three different ways, main ways to get in. There's something called direct visualization, which means physically cutting through each of the layers of the um, anterior abdominal wall until you can see the fascia and see the peritoneum and then entering in and placing the port directly into the abdomen under visualization um, that I can see that I'm through my peritoneum. I can see all my layers. This can be difficult if you're going to use small ports uh, just because it's hard to get through all those layers in a five millimeter incision. Um if you are doing a larger incision, a 10 or a 12, this is a very nice way to enter and you can see what you're doing. Uh, there's another option for what's called visualization, which is the Visiport. It is a clear laparoscopic port that you can see through. You put the camera into the port and you enter with the camera in the port um, and it kind of divides and cuts its way down into the peritoneum, but you can see the layers as you go through them. In theory, this is thought to allow you to see if you're going to enter into something. Unfortunately, you can't really see until you have entered it though. Um, so, not necessarily any safer than any of the other options. The third option does not allow you visualization and it's done by feel and it's something called the varies needle. And so you make a small incision in the skin, you stick this needle down until you feel that you've gone through the correct number of layers. Um, and so if you're going through the umbilicus, it should be um, really just one layer because it should all be one thing there. Um, but it is... Again, you can't see. So then you insufflate, you fill the belly with the CO2 typically, and you um, then have increased the depth between the skin, the fascia, and the um, abdominal contest, mainly the bowel and the vessels that we're worried about entering into. Um, and then you can enter with a port and things. So three different ways. So direct visualization with the Hassan technique, the Visiport, and the Varies needle. No major differences between the rates of complications between all three of those when you look at the large um, literature reviews. So all of them are fine, just different providers, different preferences, um, and different training experiences. So you'll probably see a combination of all three of those if you get to work with different providers. Um, However you get in, once you've got a port in, you're going to fill the belly with the CO2. Things I've seen students get asked, um, why do we insufflate with CO2? Um, think about your other options. What are your other gaseous options? So you could use oxygen, but that's flammable. You could use nitrogen, but that'll give you the bends. Um, you could use carbon monoxide instead of carbon dioxide, but that's toxic. Um, and the standard pulse ox we use in the OR or in the hospital in general can't tell the difference between carboxyhemoglobin um, and oxyhemoglobin. So people look like they are oxygenating well, but they're actually becoming toxic on carbon monoxide. Um, 
So CO2, it's inert, it's readily absorbed. So when we're done the procedure, we're going to try to desufflate the abdomen, but we're not going to get all the gas out. Um, so some gas is going to need to get reabsorbed through that abdominal wall. And CO2 is readily absorbed, even though it can cause minor irritation in the meantime, it doesn't cause any lingering issues. Um, all right. So we've got one port in, we filled up the belly with gas. We're going to fill it up to about 15, 12 to 15, uh, millimeters of mercury. And we're going to, um, put in some other ports. So now we got to look around. Sometimes you're going to do what's called an, or a diagnostic laparoscopy and you're literally just going to look around the belly and there might not be anything else to do. But most of the time we're going to at least put in one other port to move bowel around to really get a full look at things before we decide if we're going to proceed with surgery. Um, most common port placement is going to be in the middle one third between the distance between the ASIS and your umbilicus. Um, you're going to try and transilluminate with the a camera from inside the belly and make sure you're not going straight through any vessels. And you're also going to count the um, anterior abdominal wall folds to make sure you're not going through the inferior epigastric vessel that you can see um, that is going to provide a significant amount of your blood supply to that anterior abdominal wall and will create a bloody mess if you go straight through it. Um, so that one, you're looking for the inferior epigastric from inside the abdomen. And then from outside the abdomen, you're looking for any superficial perforating veins um, and, or arteries that could cause bleeding on the surface. You're typically going to put in one port in each lower quadrant. That'll give you three um, places, three ports total for minor procedures. Other people will do one in a lower quadrant and then a supra umbilical, so a couple centimeters just above your um, pubic symphysis. Uh, this way, one person can operate with both operating arms and the other person just holds the camera. Again, depends on the procedure, depends on the provider. You'll see a couple different things done. But that the one in each lower quadrant and the camera in the umbilicus is probably going to be the most common setup you see. Common procedures that you're going to do at this point. So this is where I kind of, I tend to, when I'm talking to a student in person, I'll try to tailor this conversation to the procedure we're about to do, but I'll try and go through the brief overview of the most common types of laparoscopic procedures we do. So sometimes you'll see something booked, like we mentioned, just a diagnostic laparoscopy. So this means we're just looking around in the belly. Most common things we're looking for are endometriosis, which can only be officially diagnosed by a biopsy from a laparoscopic procedure or an open procedure, um, or adhesions. If somebody's having pelvic pain due to adhesions, you can just do a diagnostic and diagnose the adhesions. Oftentimes you're going to do an operative and actually take down those adhesions, but sometimes that's not feasible or safe. Um, then other things we do commonly via laparoscopy is going to be a tubal ligation or a bilateral salpingectomy. Um, so if people desiring permanent sterilization, a couple different ways to do that. You can do a tubal ligation in a variety of ways. You can burn the tube or fulgurate it. Um, you can place clips, which are typically called filshy clips, on the tube to um, occlude the lumen. You can remove, cut and remove a segment of the tube um, or what's happening more and more commonly is a bilateral salpingectomy. And the reason being, we found in recent years um, through a couple large uh, studies that some of the epithelial ovarian cancers that uh, originate are actually originating from the tube rather than from the ovary. So they're forming what they call these stick lesions, these serous tubal intraepithelial carcinomas, and then they're spreading and they're growing out over the ovary. And by the time they're detected and operated on, they appear almost indiscernible from um, a primary epithelial ovarian cancer. So if we remove people's tubes and do a bilateral salpingectomy rather than just removing a segment of tubes, uh, it should reduce their overall risk of getting ovarian cancer in the future. 
So if they don't want to have kids, if they already want a portion of their tubes taken out, why not just take out the whole tube? Um, there are some logistical difficulties to this being if it's at the time of a C-section, there's a lot of blood flow. You don't want to cause trouble by making um, blood loss higher. So sometimes you won't be able to do it then. And insurance companies haven't quite caught up with this and started reimbursing the bilateral salpingectomy well. So you may or may not see this being undertaken at your institution. And it kind of depends on the you know politics with insurance companies and things. Uh, but it's becoming more and more common. You'll at least see it on your oncology service if you do GYN oncology, if nothing else. Um, and this is true whether or not patients have like a underlying mutation, like a BRCA or a Lynch or something that puts them at a higher risk for ovarian cancer. So this, we believe it reduces the risk in all comers, not just people at high risk. Um, all right, so that's tubal ligation or bilateral salpingectomy. Other things you're going to do commonly, like a cystectomy, so ovarian cyst removal. Um, these can be benign or cancerous. A lot of them will be what we call simple cysts, which are functional cysts that kind of grew out of proportion to what they should have become. Um, and those can be drained or just try to peel them away from the ovary and remove them in their entirety. Um, you can have benign but kind of gross, things like dermoids, which uh, can have all the different cell lines in them. These are the ones that you'll hear people talk about can have teeth and hair and gross. They're just gross. Most of the time, they're completely benign, but you can have what's called an immature one that can have cancerous cells in it that is more um, concerning. These have a de decent risk of either being bilateral or becoming bilateral. Um, so we always check the contralateral ovary at the time of taking out a dermoid. Um, the other types of cysts are um, primarily you get into cancerous cysts, things that we tell us ahead of time that we're concerned a cyst could be cancerous um, on imaging. So typically you're going to get pelvic ultrasound or a CT. Uh, and if the ovarian cyst or ovarian mass has what they call solid and cystic components, so some portions of it are solid tissue, other portions have these cystic components. That is um, a concerning ultrasonography finding for cancer. If it has thick septations, um, meaning it's split up into several different portions, um, and the thicker those septums are, the more concerning that is. If it has excrescences, which are essentially little pedunculated growths into the, from the cyst wall into the inside of the cyst, that's, again, more concerning um, for some type of cancer. If it's large, if the patient's old, um, if they're having any other symptoms, particularly um, changes in appetites, changes in bowel, increased abdominal growth, um, ascites, anything like that, that's a risk factor that it could be cancer as well. Um, so all things to kind of think about ahead of time, what could we be getting into here? Uh, so for a cystectomy, sometimes we'll, again, remove the cyst. If it won't come off without um, the ovarian wall, we do our best to save as much of the healthy ovarian stroma as possible in a young woman. Um, if they are postmenopausal and it is um, concerning for bleeding or if there's really any significant risk of cancer, more than you know a few percent, we're going to just err on the side of taking out the ovary and sending it to pathology to make sure that it's not anything that needs to be followed up or um, dealt with. <clears throat> Ooh, excuse me. Um, all right. Other things you're going to see more on an oncology service, you'll see prophylactic BSOs, so bilateral salpingoophrectomies. So we're taking out the tubes and ovaries. This is more often going to be for people who have a history, family history of um, breast or ovarian cancer or have a known BRCA mutation. Um, 
So they're going to get it taken out prior to, hopefully prior to any type of cancer. Um, and so you'll take, see thus take out both the tubes and ovaries on both sides. Um, uh, finally, a common procedure you'll see, but we'll talk about it separately, is a hysterectomy. So um, hysterectomies, we can do several different ways. Laparoscopic is one of the more common ways to do it, uh, but you'll also see these done vaginally and abdominally, meaning open. Um, so we'll do a separate podcast and talk about them separately, uh, just because there's a lot of stuff to go into with hysterectomies. All right, so whatever your procedure is, you finish up the procedure, you probably... Um, You've taken out the cyst or you've tied the tubes, you've taken everything out, you're ready to close. So when you close the ports, you think about closing anything that has greater than a five millimeter defect in the fascia. So you close anything greater than five millimeters because there's an increased risk for developing a hernia and you don't want to create a hernia there. Um, then put them at risk for needing another surgery or an incarceration and needing a bowel resection. Um, so anything more than five millimeters, we're going to close the fascia. We can either do it by direct visualization, again, reaching down into the incision, grabbing the fascia, making sure we have it, and stitching the fascia from above. Um, you can also do something called a Carter-Thompson, which you're going to use um, your laparoscopic ports to do. You're going to look inside the belly, and you're going to put the stitch um from the skin down through the belly while watching internally um, and use the pneumoperitoneum in the insufflated abdomen to kind of help make that a little bit faster and easier, hopefully. Uh, whatever it is, you'll just close anything greater than five millimeters. Hopefully both of your side ports are going to be less than five millimeters, so we don't even need to close the fascia on those. We'll just close the skin. We can close the skin with um, suture or really with just Dermabond, um, just uh, gluing the skin shut for five millimeters ports works pretty well and um, seems to close really, really well. Don't put them at any higher risk for uh, infection or anything like that. Um, then you're going to clean up the patient. You're going to take down all the drapes. You're going to, um, the anesthesia is going to extubate the patient. You're going to move them over to the other, other bed and everything. Uh, and then most of these laparoscopic cases will go home the same day. Some of them say if it's late at night or they have post-op issues like nausea or vomiting could end up staying overnight. If people stay overnight or if they're, they're having trouble in the PACU and uh, just need somebody to check on them before they go, anytime you do what's called a post-op check, so this might be post-op day one or it could be post-op day zero later in the day, a couple questions you always want to ask them. So we were in their belly, so we could have caused injury to bowel, bladder, blood vessels. Um, those are the main things we worry about. So we always want to check on nausea, vomiting. Nausea, vomiting more often is going to be a side effect of anesthesia and not a sign that there's a bowel injury or anything like that. But um, check on it because we can give them medications. We can help with it. We want to make sure that they're eating and drinking. They can't leave the hospital until they can actually stay hydrated at home at the very least. So they need to be able to take in fluids um, and hopefully eat a little something too, even if it's just crackers. Uh, hopefully we took out their Foley. So check and see if they're avoiding, if they've been able to go to the bathroom on their own or if they're having pressure and they need to go. Um, sometimes people will need to have their Foley's put back in. So we always have to make sure that they are avoiding all right. Um, check and see if they're passing gas, uh, mostly just to make sure that their bowels are moving again. Anesthesia will slow down their bowels a lot. So will the fact that we touched them. You know, most of these people, their bowels have never been touched before from the inside. So they are going to kind of freak out for a little bit, I always tell patients, and they're going to stop working. They're kind of kind of freeze. And then slowly but surely, they will start working again. It'll just take a little while. So they might, uh, again, get nauseous from the lack of peristalsis in, the, um, in their intestines, but 
when they start peristalsing, they're gonna start passing gas again. And so we usually ask them to find out if they're passing gas. Other thing to check, make sure they're ambulating. They're at least getting up and going to sitting in a chair, getting out of that bed. Make sure they're um, doing what they can to decrease their risk of a DVT and to mobilize some of the fluid they've been getting um, during their surgery. Uh, in the computer system or at the bedside or wherever you have access to their numbers, check on their urine output. If they have any lab values, check their CBC, make sure their blood count didn't drop too much, check their blood pressures, make sure they're not hypotensive, and make sure you don't have any uh, concerns about any major complications of surgery like a bowel injury, a bladder injury, a ureter injury, um, uh, sepsis, infection, things like that. So uh, you just want to make sure they're overall doing well and any concerns you might have, make sure they get raised early. Uh, you guys can often have a little bit more time than we do. Uh, we get pulled in a lot of different directions and get, you know, spend a lot of time putting in orders and things like that. So if you have an extra five minutes to spend with a patient, it really does make a difference, not only to the patients, but to us. Um, you guys really can help take great care of our patients and we really do appreciate it. All right, so that is it for sort of a brief overview of laparoscopic procedures. If you guys have specific questions, want me to talk more in depth about a specific procedure, um, write it in the comments or let us know at pimpedapp.com. Uh, if you guys check out our Pimped, uh, the YouTube channel, which you can find the link in the comments or in the description below. Let us know if there's anything missing. Say, I really want a good high quality video on X. I'll do my best to find it for you. Make sure it's fact checked and accurate. And then I can add it to the list for you. Um, so hope this is helpful. We'll see you next time for your first hysterectomy.